So why should we pray? And why should our prayers be more than just mechanical or rote? Why should there be passion within us when we do pray? Well, there are lots of reasons for that, but I'm going to give you just one. On Tuesday night, January 22nd, Freedom Tower of the World Trade Center was lit up in pink to celebrate New York's passage of the Reproductive Health Act. And this new bill allows for abortions right up to the time of delivery. Now, I'm not going to take time to debate what the bill allows or what it doesn't allow, because what's not debatable about this bill is that it is a, a wider doorway to death. What's not debatable is that more babies will die. What's not debatable, if the women who have suffered through an abortion are to be believed, a little bit of their soul died as well. So it seems to me that signing a bill like this one would be a somber moment. Isn't death sad? Do we generally celebrate death? It would seem to me that even for proponents of the bill, this would have been more of a, well, we don't want to do this, but we believe this is something that we must do. But it wasn't that way. I watched the footage, did you, of the signing of the bill? It was heartbreaking to watch and listen to the cheering and the clapping and to see the huge smiles of joy on the faces of those present when the ink signature went on the paper. The governor of New York said, I'm directing that New York's landmarks be lit in pink to celebrate this achievement and to shine a bright light forward for the rest of the nation to follow. How are we now going to define bright light? He said, this bill is a historic victory for New Yorkers and for our progressive values. Where are we progressing? Unless we think that this is just the actions of the wicked north, from those who are off, you know. Let's bring it home to the south, to the governor of Virginia, who last week did not back away from his words or regret these comments that he made when a similar bill failed in Virginia. This is what he said. The infant would be delivered. The infant would be kept comfortable. The infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physician and the mother. I don't even want to begin to imagine that conversation or the outcome of it or the thinking of reasonable people who would have a baby on a table and still debate whether it's human life. This is our reality. This is the new culture for you and for me. And I'll just say this, it's too big for us. And so I'm reminded of what Jesus said to his disciples once when they faced a situation 
that was too big for them. Jesus said, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is why we pray. With great humility. We pray acknowledging, except for the grace of God, I might be there cheering death and calling it a great light forward. Apart from the grace of God, I might be one who labels progress what is in reality a regression into deep darkness. And so I will say it again. This life we're living is not a game. Now there's a game tonight. 100 million people are going to watch it. Normally I would say something cute or clever about the Super Bowl, but I don't really feel like it this morning because I don't care if Tom Brady gets another Super Bowl ring or not. But this battle is just one battle. It's an extreme one. It's an important one, and it's one reason to pray. But there are many, many other situations that call us to prayer. And in order for you and for me to pray effectively, and in order to pray the kind of prayers that might just possibly bring about monumental change, you and I have to be in a right relationship with God. We must be people who pray from our right relationship with the Lord. That's what I hope we'll see this morning as we return once again to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles. If you don't have one, there should be one in the pew. And turn to Matthew chapter 6. And when you've found your place, let's stand together so we can hear proclaimed the word of the Lord. Matthew chapter five, chapter 6, beginning in verse 5, Jesus is teaching. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's pray together. Lord, first this morning we just pray for all of these babies that may be potentially impacted by this bill. We pray, Lord, that you would be their advocate, your Father, their defender. We pray that you would supersede, go beyond what is expected to to protect life. Lord, we pray now as well as we come to your word that you would open our eyes to see and ears to hear your truth. Lord, that you would convict us of our need to pray and that you would make it the longing of our heart that all of us here live in a right relationship with you so that we can pray for one another, pray for this world. That's our desire as we come now to your word, and we pray that you would bless us toward that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, Matthew heard the call to become a disciple. Jesus said to him, follow me, and Matthew followed. And Matthew heard as well the call that Jesus gave to all the disciples to go and to make disciples of all nations. And so writing this gospel is Matthew's way of fulfilling 
being a disciple and also of making disciples of others. And so I like to picture Matthew laboring over this gospel as he writes it, praying about what to write, praying about how to write it. How can this gospel best make disciples? You know, in a world with few books and low literacy, in a world with no internet where you can't say, okay, Google, how can he best and most effectively make disciples? Well, Matthew did it by telling his story in this gospel in such a way that people could memorize it. Now we gasp. <gasps> memorize the book of Matthew? We, we don't memorize much anymore, but people in Jesus' day, they did. They were trained at memorization. And that's how they passed on what they memorized to others. And so Matthew has made the process of memorization easier. In his gospel... He forms it around five blocks of teaching. This Sermon on the Mount is one of those blocks of teaching. And within this block of teaching, in order to make it memorable and memorizable, there are vivid illustrations. For example, this one in Matthew 5.30. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. <laughs> now that, brothers and sisters is a vivid, unforgettable image. And I bet more than once in your life, that image has come to your mind and perhaps has even prevented you from putting your hand towards sin. Poetry is part of this teaching. Think of the, the beautiful beatitudes at which we looked over the course of those many weeks. Blessed are the poor, are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I bet that beatitude has encouraged you more than once to do the pure thing because the longing of your heart is to see God. Matthew wanted this sermon to be memorizable because Jesus' followers must orient themselves, their lives around everything that Jesus teaches here. None of us is going to do it perfectly. But obeying Jesus in these things becomes the direction that we choose for our lives. Yes, Lord, this is the way I want to live my life. Now, all that to say that when we looked at these verses two weeks ago, we saw that the center of the center of the center of the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount is about prayer. Remember that? And the center always holds a place of significance. It's the bull's eye. That's what we aim for. In fact, the background for the word sin means to miss the mark. And it comes from the world of spear throwing and archery. And it refers to missing the gold at the center of the target. That's sin. You miss the center and the gold that you find there. The center is hugely important. And so where Jesus places this teaching about prayer in the center of the center of the center leads me to believe that for the believer in Christ, prayer is pure gold. Imagine what our lives would look like if we believed that. It's the center point. And so for the disciple, prayer must be vital and it must be central. Now that was also a big buildup for why we are looking at prayer 
once again this morning. Because two weeks ago, we mostly considered just one principle. Whatever God ordains, Satan what? Opposes. Since God ordains that prayer is vital in the life of His children, since God ordains that prayer should be central to our lives, then Satan opposes both. And in order to oppose God-ordained prayer, the enemy turned prayer into a rote activity. And as we saw, the Jews prayed a lot. And they had a lot of different prayers that they memorized for lots of different situations that they would encounter in their lives. And we compared those prayers to the prayers of Jesus, the ones he prayed that were heart-engaged prayers of intensity and emotion. The monumental moments of Jesus' life were marked by prayer, choosing the apostles that would carry the gospel into the world, the apostles who would build the church accompanied by prayer, the transfiguration of Jesus, the moment that the glory of heaven came to earth accompanied by prayer. And of course, the last night of his life, before dying on the cross, accompanied by prayer. So we should not expect monumental things to happen in our lives. We should not expect monumental things to happen in our culture or in our efforts to advance the kingdom of God here on earth apart from prayer. So this morning we're going to descend a little from the heights of the overarching importance of prayer to talk a little more specifics about it. Particularly that prayer is all based on relationship. A relationship that is either right or it's wrong. And so let's look first at this wrong relationship. In his teaching in these verses, Jesus gives two descriptions of the prayer life of the hypocrite. And remember, the hypocrite is the religious person whose outside appearance does not match the inner reality. Jesus describes in these verses where they pray and what they pray. And both where they pray and what they pray gives us a very clear indication that their relationship with God is not right. This morning, we're just going to consider where they pray. Look in verse 5. Jesus says that the hypocrites pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. Now, both of these places are places where lots of people are present. And in fact, the Greek word that we translate street literally means broad or wide of a great distance from side to side. And so here's another one of those memorable images that Jesus is giving to us. We are to picture the widest, busiest city streets that we can imagine. And there on the corner of those two streets, there's where you will find the hypocrites praying. Because those streets are crowded with people. People who want to make money. People who want to spend money. As is true with us today, location is everything. Location, location, location. And so the hypocrites stood on the street corners where people could see them praying. They made certain that at the time of day, when the trumpet sounded, calling people for prayer, they could dramatically stop on the street corner and begin their prayer show. Where they pray is an indication of their misunderstanding of prayer and their wrong relationship with God. Where they prayed 
indicates who they believed their audience truly is. They believe the crowds of people. That is their audience. How other this is from a biblical understanding of prayer. The reality is that prayer, when it's biblical, always and only has God as the audience. And forgive me for being trite, but prayer is for an audience of one. God alone is God. And in prayer, only one throne that must be approached, and that is the throne of God, because on that throne is the only one, the only one who has the power to grant our petitions, whatever they may be. Only He is big enough and omnipotent enough and omniscient enough and omnipresent enough to take all the prayers of all His people and work them together and weave them together for good in a way that accomplishes His good and acceptable and perfect will. And so those who understand prayer rightly and who rightly relate to God know that prayer is to an audience of one. For the hypocrites, prayer was for everybody but God. And Jesus tells us why that's true. Look again in verse 5. He says that they pray to be seen by men. And the word that Jesus uses for seen here really means to shine. Just like the sun, just like the moon, just like a lamp. And so the hypocrites pray so that they might shine before other people. Other people are, are their audience. And this is by an intentional decision. Please do not assume that the hypocrites did not know what they were doing. This is what they want to make of prayer because their relationship with God is so off. Look in verse 5. Jesus tells us they love to stand and pray. It's what makes them happy. They're drawn to this kind of praying. They're addicted to be being seen by everyone, to shining before others. And not to dive too deeply into the Greek here, but just know that the implication of what Matthew writes is the hypocrites do not pray. They don't even pray unless someone else is watching or listening. If others can't see them, they don't pray. So what value do they really place on prayer? In prayer, they weren't making a connection with God. They were simply attempting to advance themselves. Think of the difference they could have made if they had stepped off of the street corner and stepped into the alley. In the alley, they would have discovered people who needed their prayers the most. In that alley, they could have connected with God heart to heart so that what was on God's heart is also the very thing that was on their hearts. In the alley, they would have found the poor, the crippled, the marginalized. In the alley, they would have found the people who had made the very worst mistakes possible in life and therefore who needed the most prayer and the most compassion and the most mercy and the most grace. But the hypocrites, their relationship with God was not one where they wanted to connect with Him heart to heart. So the question is, why did the hypocrites not have a relationship with God that, that drew them to God? When it was just them and the Lord all alone. Why were they uncomfortable with that relationship? What fears did they have in connecting with God alone, heart 
the heart. And we should probably ask ourselves those very same questions. I don't think we struggle with public praying like the hypocrites in Jesus' day. We're, we're not a thoroughly religious city like Jerusalem was, where religion really controlled and was front and center of everything and, and where trumpets called you to pray. A city where religious leaders were brought in and consulted by the pagan Roman government. You could advance yourself greatly and make yourself very rich if you were considered a good and faithful prayer. Not so much for us. We don't have that same attraction to public prayer as the hypocrites did. But what we do have in common with them is the need to ask ourselves, why are we praying? Who is our audience when we pray? What is our relationship with God like? Do you want to be all alone with the Lord? An audience of one. Jesus says here in verse 6, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Jesus is not condemning public prayer here. He prayed publicly. The early church prayed publicly. What Jesus is talking about here is right relationship. A relationship in which you are okay with being all alone with God. Where no one else is around. Where no one else is watching or listening. When there's nothing to be gained except what you gain from being in the presence of God. It's about not fearing to be alone with God. How comfortable are you when you're alone with Him? God wants us to be comfortable. So we read in Hebrews 4, well-known verse, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Draw near. That'll never happen. You will never draw near to the Lord. Be all alone with Him if you are afraid of the Lord. But listen, when you draw near, it'll be okay. You're going to be okay, and I'm going to be okay because of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell in their Gospels the moment about when Jesus died on the cross. And when He died, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, God's dwelling place on earth from everything else. No one was allowed to enter into the holy presence of God except the high priest once a year. But when Jesus died, that curtain was torn. And the way to God was open. Is that good news? Again, in Hebrews chapter 12. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, 
So terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, you have come to to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, into innumerable angels and festal gathering, into the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, into God, the judge of all, into the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Come, God says, the writer of Hebrews is referencing the Old Testament here. Particularly the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, and it was a scary thing. Scary for the people who were there. But never forget that approaching God, and the way that God required for people to approach Him in the Old Testament, and the rituals that they had to go through in order To come into the presence of God reminded the people of whose presence they were entering. As they were preparing themselves to come into God's presence, they were mindful of the kind of God into whose presence they were coming. Reminded to the one of whom they were praying. He's different than we are. He's other than we are. We have to know that if we're going to go to Him in prayer. He is holy. He is mighty. He is powerful. And that's why He alone can answer prayer. And so that should not inspire fear in us. It should encourage us to pray. This is the kind of God into whose presence we come. Once more in Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, confidence by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus makes it okay for us to be in God's presence. He's washed us. He's cleansed us. He's the one who tells his disciples on the mountain, but when you go, go, when you pray, go into your inner room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Your Father. We're going to be considering that in the weeks to come. But for right now, and we are so close to finished, let me point out that Jesus Jesus uses the word Father 17 times in the Sermon on the Mount. Ten of those 17 times are right here in chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. So think of it this way. Here. In the center of the center of the center of the sermon where Jesus teaches about prayer, we also find the greatest concentration of the word Father. And so that indicates to us how vital that prayer, right prayer, effective prayer, prayer that has the potential for monumental change must be based on a right relationship between a father and his son, a father and his daughter. 
Jesus wants his disciples, and that's us, to have this vital connection. Father, Son, Father, Daughter. And that's why he died on the cross, to make this kind of relationship possible. Jesus makes it safe for you and for me to be in the presence of the Lord all alone in prayer before him. And so here's my plea. It's for me and it's for you. That we would have a right relationship with the Lord so that you and I will be in his presence often in prayer. Jesus promises here that the Father rewards that kind of relationship and that kind of prayer. Make the relationship between you and the Father right through Jesus. Listen to this. Other people. Other people need you to be in right relationship with the Father because other people need you to pray. These unborn babies need us to pray. Lots of things in our culture call out to us to pray, help, help. And we help them when we pray. So don't get angry or only angry when you hear such things going on in our culture. But pray, pray, pray. Why do we insist on expecting Christian behavior from non-Christians? You and I, who have the Spirit of God, find it difficult enough to live the Christian life apart from prayer. So why should we expect people for whom we don't pray, people who are not believers, who don't know the Lord, how can they make any other choice but a choice that's convenient for them? But here's the good news. Want good news? Change is possible when God's people pray. When God's people who are in right relationship with God pray, monumental change can take place. Jesus promises here that the Father will reward the prayer of a right relationship. And so it's vital for so many people that you and I be in a right relationship with God. That we long to be in His presence, that we're drawn to His presence often, and when we get there, that we pray. Let's do that now. Lord, make us people of prayer. And Lord, Convict us of prayerlessness. Forgive us for thinking the wrong things about prayer. For believing it doesn't matter. For believing you don't hear. For believing you won't answer. Forgive us for perverting our theology that says, oh, well, if you're a sovereign God, everything is predetermined and there's no reason, no reason to, to pray. Lord, dispel that thought from our presence. Because along with the truth of your sovereignty in Scripture, is call after call after call after call to your people to pray. So, Lord, I pray that you would make us praying people, that we would believe right things about you, that you, you desire for us to come, and that when you come, we need not fear you because we come through Jesus, who has opened the way to you for us. So, Lord, convince us that our prayers do make a difference. Help us to come often. Help us to pray for others. Help us to know when things are too big for us, which is really, Lord, most things in our lives anyway. 
so that we pray often. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And even though I've